in any case, we've reached my favorite part of the show, which is where we talk about South Africans who are doing great things, or rather talk to South Africans who are doing great things. On tonight's show, we've got Dr. Lydia Cancross, and she is in studio with us this evening. She is an expert on breast cancer surgery. She is um, head of breast and endocrine if I pronounce that correctly, surgery at Grotteskir Hospital in Cape Town. Um, but over and above that, she's also, you know, a social activist. She's an academic. She's just doing so many great things. So I am so honored to have you on the show this evening. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thanks so much, Levin. So, I mean, I want us to um, delve right into the, the, the topic for this evening. I think the first bit for me is that obviously October is... Um, is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And, um, you know, for a lot of people, breast cancer and cancer in general is quite a sensitive topic and something that they have experienced personally. Mm. So I wanted us to maybe start by talking about some of your own work in, in breast cancer surgery. But if we can maybe just start by talking about how do women, you know, how do we make sense of this? How do we identify it? How do we know, you know, that it's what the lump is? All mm. those things. Where, mm. where do we start? Yeah, thanks for that. I think um, Breast Cancer Awareness Month is very important because it profiles an issue that's there. And as you say, cancer is something that people are often not prepared to speak about or think through. So um, breast cancer is the commonest cancer amongst women. Um, it affects up to one in 10 women um, during their lifetime. Um, and we know that um, at Crotus Care, we run a very, very busy breast cancer service. And we see over 500 women a year mm. with breast cancer newly diagnosed every year through our clinic. The most common symptom of breast cancer is a breast lump. It's usually not painful, but there are other things like changes to the skin or glands under the arm, a change in the appearance of the breast or the nipple. Anything that's really different is what's important to report. So many women believe that pain on its own is a sign of breast cancer, but actually that's one of the things that's not related to breast cancer. So I think one of the key things in South Africa is we have a lot of late presentation of disease. And the first step in that is awareness of what the symptoms are. And the second step is access to adequate and quality health services. And that, of course, is, is an interface of, of many social and political issues. Um, and within our service at Crotoskia, we struggle hard to continue to provide a quality service to really a growing volume of, of women who need that. And we have allies and partners, for example, Project Flamingo, which is an NGO um, that fundraises for our um, breast cancer patients and supplies pamper packs and extra theater lists and innumerable ways of, of practical support. Um, so we thank them for that. Um, we also appreciate that there are many other corporate initiatives that go on, but I find that for us in the public sector, what we really need to do is to pool our resources into building our public clinics and hospitals and theatres and make sure that women can have access from point of diagnosis all the way through to treatment, care, psychological support and beyond to palliative care as well. Mm. And I mean, you raise a, a very interesting point by making this a conversation about a, a more um, sort of it's not a one-stop shop. And, and even, I suppose, the, the experience of, of having cancer, undergoing surgery, there's so much that happens after that surgery. Um, and so I wanted to ask you about, you know, within the public um, sector or the public healthcare space, um, you mentioned that we currently do have limitations in terms mm. of, you know, how we are treating women um, for, for these cases. What is, what are, I mean, how do how do women who maybe are not from backgrounds that that can access, you know, quality and um, private um, health care, how, how are they supported and how are they treated, you know, in the in the process of, of 
yeah, surgery for their cancer. Yeah, so I think that that's where a lot of um, NGOs support survivors of cancer actually come into play because the state services just don't have the capacity to provide the kind of psychological um, and social support that women need going through this process. So we find that we're able to provide the sort of basic reasonable quality medical care but the other things that are very important around that often fall by the wayside. Um, we also have a problem with our waiting lists. So while we try to keep our waiting lists down, we actually have to do extra lists mm. um, on public holidays and weekends. And all the doctors in our team actually will come out on those days and voluntarily do operations on sure. extra days like that. And that's where Project Flamingo has actually funded those for us. And in fact, tomorrow there will be a project list um, for breast cancer patients within our hospital, which will be run by doctors in our team. Um, so many, many people do what they can to to do the, to go the extra mile, but we really need better funding and support for public hospitals. Um, and specifically within our clinic, we need better diagnostic services um, and more theatre lists. Mm, sure. And so on that subject of, you know, more support for, for public hospitals, you are part of the People's Health movement um, and you know part of the dialogue that's happened within that has been a focus on the national health insurance or the proposed national health insurance scheme um, can you tell us a little bit more about your thoughts on that? Mm. So I think that um, the health system in South Africa is in deep crisis both the public and the private health system and so the um, plan to do something about that is important um, and the national health insurance falls under that banner of a significant intervention within the health sector. There are some critiques of how NHI has been presented, but fundamentally we need to see a shift of funding from private medicine to public medicine. So as you know, only about 14% of the population accesses private health care, and yet half of the money spent on health care is spent within the private sector. Mm -hmm. um, and these numbers get worse when you look at health personnel, so the majority of, of doctors, uh, dentists, psychologists, and various other specialists actually work within the private sector, not within the public sector, often not by choice. Often they are not funded posts or posts available in uh, particular areas or the posts that are there, um, it's not possible to provide the level of care that people would like to. So it's not that the health workers themselves may always be opting out of the public sector, but that the public sector is actually not trying to keep and um, expand the human resource capacity that it has. So we're hoping that NHI will address that. Um, there are some complexities within it which, which I don't think we have the time to unpack, but, but it is worrying that the NHI white papers come out and we don't know what the next step is, and that within all the major budget um, announcements recently, there's no specific budgeting for NHI. Mm. So we're not really sure if and when it is coming. Sure. It's. I mean, these numbers that you that you're giving are, are quite scary. That 14% of the population has access to private healthcare, and 50% of funding within the healthcare sector goes to the private sector. That's that's quite disturbing when you think about it. I mean, so there was um, a little piece that I saw you'd written about how the um, you know the current public oh, the current health um, sector in South Africa is skewed in favor of 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 the rich essentially um, and you pointed out some some of the inequalities that we actually have within the sector one of them being the fact that people who have medical aid can actually file 
their um you know tax certificates from medical aid and get mm-hmm. money back from yes. that and how that in itself is a way that funding is being channeled out of you know the mm. state and back into um, private sector. Do you want to expand on that a bit? Yeah, thanks for picking up on that. <clears throat> um, many people um, don't realize the significance of that issue. So it's not only that we have two parallel health systems running, but that actually the public sector broadly continues to subsidize the private sector in a number of ways. And you've mm. mentioned one of them, that there are tax incentives for buying medical schemes, for buying private insurance. This means that you get tax money back from Private Gordon at the end of the year for having a private medical aid. But essentially, it's several, several billion rand that should be in the public fiscus that go towards the private sector, that go back to individuals. So you incentivize mm. the buying of private insurance. And I've said on many occasions that the first step towards NHI must be to stop tax incentives for private health insurance. The second major way is that all public workers receive tax, uh, receive uh, medical aid subsidies. Um, and a lot of these medical aids actually don't really provide proper health care. So mm. they're very basic. You often have to be in a public hospital. Many, many things are not covered. So while we understand that many workers need these subsidies, it's actually better to spend that money on improving the public sector. Mm. Combined, those two amounts come to about 20% of the health budget. So if we were to use that money and rechannel it to a human resource plan, we could actually begin to really impact on quality of care. And then the the most important way that the public subsidizes the private is through training of health professionals. So we train the doctors and most of the nurses in the country, OTs, physios, psychologists, you know, they're trained within the public sector. And yet most of them migrate to the private sector mm. either voluntarily or because there are no posts in the public sector. And I mean, so just going back to the question of the fiscus, I mean, others might retort and say, does it have to be an either or question? So does it have to be that we cancel tax incentives for um, private medical aid um, and then use that money to support the fiscus? Can we not do both? So can we not um, support the public health sector whilst also allowing people the choice and the agency to go with the private sector for their health care? So there will always be an option for for private health insurance. I don't think that um, that on the in the NHI plan or even what any of us are saying but the point is the private sector in South Africa is extremely powerful mm. so we actually have one of the biggest private sectors in the world proportionally and the problem with a very pr- powerful private sector is that it dictates policy and also that it it sucks in the human resources mm. so it's not so much just a question of let the two systems run they don't interact that's not the case mm. so when you actually talk about improving the public sector you have to draw people into the public sector from the private sector and part of that is reducing the tax subsidy so it's for the money but it's also for shifting that balance of power between the two systems mm. sure for those of you who have just joined us we are talking to dr lydia Cancross. She is the um, head of breast cancer surgery, um, breast and endocrine surgery, sorry, at Grotesky Hospital. Um, we're talking, uh, we started talking a bit about breast cancer and, you know, in, in honor, I suppose, of Breast Cancer Month um, and talking about some of the, you know, experiences and ways that we can identify breast cancer as women. But now we've sort of moved the conversation on to be talking about, you know, the parallel 
um, health systems that we have in South Africa, the public health care system and the private health care system, and some of the inequalities that these two systems bring out for us, um, you know, when we when we look at, at South Africa. So if you do have thoughts on this, if you do want to engage with us, you're more than welcome to give us a call on 021-446-0567 or on 021-883-0702. You're also welcome to SMS us on 31567 or 31702. Um, we're going to continue the conversation in a bit, but um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, but we're just going to take a, a quick break, and then I will be back to continue the conversation, talking more about you know the health services and really focusing on inequality. What is it that we're seeing in our society? Um, you know, when we look at our healthcare system, what does that tell us about our current society and the way that it's structured? We're still talking to Dr. Lydia Kencross, the head of breast and endocrine surgery at Khrutiskir Hospital. She is our South African that is doing great things this evening. So before the break, we were um, talking about, you know, the public and private health sectors and talking about some of the um, challenges that we have in those two spaces, but more specifically focusing on how we currently have a system that incentivizes people to go towards the private sector um, and also a system where very few people can actually access the private sector. So essentially we've got, you know, the public sector funding the private healthcare sector um, and there's very little sort of um, room to maneuver in that sense in order for us to improve our public sector um, offerings at the moment. So in in taking this uh, conversation uh, further um, you know, in the uh, People's Health Movement, I know you guys had a, a bit of an indaba in Kailicha earlier this year mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken and some of the um, you know, uh, writings or information that that came out of that was how you know a lot of people were saying all that they want if we are to fully establish this nhi is to establish healthcare that is accessible Mm. and the word accessible i suppose it's become a bit of a buzzword these days you know with all that's happening around us but practically speaking when we talk about healthcare being accessible what does that mean does it mean just having a doctor around the corner does it mean having access to information does it mean you know how do we unpack that that concept specifically for the kind of work that you do yes no th- thanks for that um yes we did have a meeting in Kailicha to talk about and to to hear voices from the ground um in terms of what the health system should look like and i think these are important questions because the People's Health Movement um, believes that primary health care underpins um, our philosophy around health and that there must be a strong preventative and promotive component to health care. So one of the problems with private health care, in fact, is that it's, it's curative-based, curative and hospital-based, whereas what we need to find have more and more is addressing the fundamental issues that result in ill health, such as socioeconomic issues, um, water, sanitation, education, transportation, uh, accommodation, mm. etc. Um, and there is a, a real lack of that that being addressed within the NHI model. So um, when we talk about accessibility, we also talk about a, d- a democratic health system. Mm. And if we're going to be constructing a community-centered and community-controlled health system, then we actually have to start asking from communities what they want to see the health system look like. And that's really been a failing in terms of the NHI model. It hasn't been a bottom-up process. In fact, it's been a closed cabinet ministerial committee process. So we can say what we think as PHM, but what we really are saying 
saying is we should be asking communities what they think. So what we think is that we need to roll out on a mass scale community health worker program. So community health workers live within communities and they take on the role not just of technical um giving vaccinations, weighing babies and so on, but that they're active health promoters Mm. in a political sense. And health promotion is more than just the absence of disease. It's actually about looking at, so if the water is not adequate, who is it that's responsible for supplying clean water? Why has that not happened? Where are the pressure points within Mm. the community that you need to mobilize in order to make that happen? And how do we arrange ourselves and empower ourselves as communities to make sure that that happens? If the issue is accommodation and we've got families overcrowded and we've got a TB crisis, where who is it that's responsible for making sure that houses are delivered? Mm. So health is really a political issue and um, community health workers should play that political role as being the interface between communities and the health system. So the first thing we say is, you know, rolling out hundreds of thousands of community health workers. Accessibility also means that when you do need curative care, so you need primary, secondary or quatern- tertiary or quaternary care, that that care should be accessible for everybody in an appropriate way. Mm-hmm. So one of the, the issues that came out of the Kailicha meeting was we realized that many, many people were traveling for health care. So they had a local facility, but the po- quality was so poor they weren't prepared to go there. They weren't prepared to stand for hours in a queue and get Panado or the drugs are out of stock or the doctor's not there anymore because they've seen 80 patients already mm-hmm. or they've seen 80 patients and they have to you know, spend five minutes each which is not adequate. So many were traveling to other clinics which function better and one of the historical legacies we have is that we have different quality of care within different facilities. So historically white and historically privileged facilities have a different quality of care. There's a huge divide between urban and rural quality mm. of care mm. as well, which relates to human resources and, and how those are allocated and how those are retained. So within rural areas, it's very difficult to ret- retain health workers. Um, career pathing is not clear. There's no... Um, way that you can expand what you're doing beyond just when you've graduated. And if you have families um, and social aspects of education, accommodation, Mm -hmm. all of those things. So there are creative ideas that we can have around that, such as rural universities or medical schools or um, giving priority to students who come from rural areas because we know that if you come from a rural area, you're much more likely to go back Mm. and work in a rural area, Mm. up to four times more likely. So those kinds of creative things can be done. Um, It's not that we should throw our hands in the air and say, you know, health workers are law unto themselves and they they don't want to go. There are creative ways to incentivize, which are not just monetary, Mm. because with doctors and all health workers, it's not just about money. It's job satisfaction and quality of care. Mm. We've got George on the line from Chwane. He wants to ask us a question. Hello, George. Hi, doctor. Um, A friend of mine um, had a particularly aggressive form of breast cancer, and uh, she was put on a course of her septin. And um, I believe it's a very, very good drug. But uh, I just want to know two things. How effective is it and why is it so expensive? Mm. Okay, thank you for your question, George. The doctor will answer that now. Yes, thank you very much. So Herceptin, um, 
Um, is standard of care for patients who have HER2 positive cancers, which is a particularly aggressive form of breast cancer, as you've mentioned. And it is effective. There are significant improvements, improvements in survival. It is extremely expensive. So into the hundreds of thousands of rands for every patient. In fact, the state sector does not have access to Herceptin at mm. the moment. As to why pharmaceuticals are expensive is a, an entirely mm. different and very important political debate. So there are issues around patent rights. Um, also, Herceptin at the moment needs to be given every th- three weeks for a year on the current protocols. And while there are studies looking at whether shorter duration is going to be as effective, those have not been published yet. So when it comes to drug pricing, it's whether there's licensing on the drug and also whether the state is able to negotiate a better price. And of course, whether there are other pharmaceutical companies that are able to to compete and actually produce the drugs at a lower rate. So yes, Herceptin is effective. It is extremely expensive and that should be challenged at a public level because we should be able to access that for our patients in the state sector. Mm. Sure. Hish, okay. So, I mean, not a very pretty picture for what's happening in, in in the public sector. I wanna move the conversation further on as well. So. I mean, Dr. Ken Cross, you you are a, a medical practitioner, but you also have quite a, a um, you know quite an, a, a lot of involvement and and commitment to um, social activism. And there's quite a bit of things that that you've been involved in. So we we're gonna get a bit more personal <laughs> <laughs> in this part of the show. Do you want to maybe start by just telling us about about yourself and your family, the kind of background that you grew up in, and how that's um, informed or influenced your current uh, social activism? Mm, no, thanks, thanks for that. So um, I grew up in a in a political household. Um, my my parents. Um, were involved in various left progressive socialist movements within the anti-apartheid struggle. Um, And in 1980, um, our family went into exile. I was four or five at the time. So my parents uh, lived in Zimbabwe with us for about 10 years until 1990 when we came back home. And in those years in Zimbabwe, we had you know, um, comrades from various political movements coming through our home all the time. So we would often be sitting around and listening to political discussions or falling asleep in meetings. Um, And so on the one hand, it was quite a politicized upbringing. But on the other hand, I think because we were outside of South Africa, as children, we were protected from a lot of the traumas in that vulnerable age um, Mm. that other families and their children experienced with their parents being picked up in the middle of the night and, and things like that. So when we came back to South Africa, I was 13 and I got involved in student Student struggles um, around in the early 90s, um, uh, before the before the democratic elections, and running up to the elections, there were lots of political struggles around around that as well. So I suppose I think, you know, I had a socialist identity before a medical identity, <laughs> before I became a surgeon, and mm. and sort of that commitment to social change underpins most of the work that I do though I also love doing the clinical work which is eternally redemptive (laughs) (laughs) I like that eternally redemptive so I mean with your social activism and and being an academic that's uh, part of the University of Cape Town you've been um, quite vocal 
about your thoughts and your perspectives on what's currently happening in the country uh, with the fees must fall protests. But even before fees must fall, I mean, you gave the um, opening address when UCT um, renamed the Humanities Building to the Neville Alexander Building. So if we can maybe um, delve into some of your perspectives, what is it that you have been vocal about right now, Mm. given the current protests that are happening in the country? Yeah, so this is actually uppermost in my mind right now because of the deep crisis that we're in as universities throughout the country and and specifically as as the University of Cape Town. So I think that the Feast Must Fall movement and specifically within UCT, the institutional issues really speak to the fact that a generation post-liberation, a political liberation, we actually are not really there. So, as I've said in many speeches, not yet Uhuru Mm. at all. And the universities such as UCT for a long time did not have critical mass of black students within them Mm. um, and also critical mass of poor black students within them. Um, And the social tensions within society that are really visible um, remain um, confined within poor communities um, and and don't really spill over. We don't notice them in middle class communities. But within the university system, suddenly there is this um, imperative to address the fact that we have a completely untenable social and economic system in South Africa. We're the two richest people in South Africa. Their net wealth is equal to 50% of the population. Mm. So that's the Oxfam report. Mm. So this is a social and political time bomb, an economic time bomb, which is waiting to happen. And I think that the the student movement needs to be seen within the context of that, that it's an inevitability that these institutions that have been really seamlessly functioning from the previous system to the current system in terms of of this um, hierarchy, in terms of their practice, in terms of the um, who the leadership within the universities are in terms of being still predominantly white and male, um, that that rupture had to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, it's happening around fees and it's happening around the call around decolonization because of the feeling of alienation and racism within these institutions. And people can't recognize it easily from the outside because UCT has got a liberal face to it. Mm-hmm. But um, listening to students' experiences, the experience, what they're feeling within the university is actually a resistance to change um, and the fact that they feel they actually have to leave their pride at the door to come in and assimilate into a university such as UCT. And that is a visceral, it's it's an emotive, it's a heartfelt cry and it's not being heard as such. Mm. So the movement has become more, you know, you start where you speak Um, and you appeal and you talk from the heart and then you start to protest and then you start to mobilize because a force needs a counterforce to to shift the balance of power. And then you have a polarized situation and when you're knocking on the door and the door doesn't open, you start to push the door and that's Mm. what we're seeing here. Mm. So what is the response? What has the response been? You know, this is something where you need to sit down and have humility and listen to try and understand and not have a technocratic response to it. Yes, there's a national fees issue, but at an institutional level, here is an appeal from a student body to say, we're not heard, we're not seen, Mm. listen. Mm. And that's not happening. So the conflict has escalated and there have been 
terrible acts that have occurred. Some of them we don't know who's done them. Mm. Um, some of them we do. Some of them have been outbreaks of anger and rage and hurt. And there's been really a propaganda campaign against the student movement. So a hyperbole around a few isolated incidents which are painted into that this movement doesn't have anything beyond these, you know, conflict uh, flashpoints. Mm. So the militarization of the university, which is taking place right now, um, and there's an interdict now against um, protest action within the university, is a very dangerous step, I believe, because I think it threatens the academic project, which is spoken about a lot going forward. So we might be able to clamp down on 2016's protests and we might be able to finish the academic year, but what's going to happen next year and the year after that? Because these issues are not going away. They may be represented in ways which are tactically problematic, but the essence of the movement Mm. is correct and legitimate and it will continue to rise with new leaders going forward. So the university actually needs to step back and say, what is our responsibility to building a university which is actually a community that includes black students Mm. who have raised these issues? And if we're not able to do that, either it means we're not going to be a community or we're not going to be able to to grow the university going forward or it doesn't see itself historically sitting within an African context. I think those are the kinds of questions that need to be asked. I want to read um, I want to read a portion of an open letter that you had written to the university. As teachers, we reject the notion of teaching within the shadow of armed guards. If our universities, the institutions of high learning, the very home and space of ideas and intellectual discussion, cannot find a better solution to our problems than armed guards, then we have failed as an institution of higher learning, for we are teaching that force, not thought, is the only way to resolve our differences. We say no to private security in our name. And I want to ask you, as an academic, who has found herself in this very, very tense kind of space, in this tense kind of environment. What, what is it that you perceive of your own role within, um, within this current movement? But, I mean, not just at an individual level, but in general, what is the role of academics in this time? So I think that... There is a supportive role, so this is a student-led movement and we recognize that and there are reasons that that is important that needs to be respected. At this moment in time, I'm constructing in my mind a piece um, which will have somewhere in the title, Academics Must Rise. (laughs) Because I think Mm. that the heartbreaking events we've seen the last few weeks has really been an attempt to crush and disintegrate the student movement. Um, with multiple serial arrests and uh, harassment and intimidation and so on. Um, And it is really the time for academics to step up, not to step into that space, but to create a different space and to say, actually, we do not accept this in our institution. Mm. Now, academics are also disempowered at many levels within the university. Um, Many are in a vulnerable position. Their funding is vulnerable. Um, Some are on probation. So there are reasons why it's difficult sometimes Mm. for academics to do that. It's not that they're universally, you know, an empowered uh, group of people. But um, I I think that is it is the moment for that. Um, And even if it's a minority, a significant minority can make a huge difference. 
Um, and it's important that the, uh, the student movement is not isolated and believed and criminalized and believed to be um, essentially um, nothing more than a, a group of um, hyper-radical, um, you know, out-of-control um, students who, mm. who just want to create mayhem because that mm. is not the case. And the role of academics is actually to be within that space, to say we are your allies, we stand with you, we stand behind the call for free decolonized education and we are prepared to put something on the line for that because I think that's where the difference. The students have shown what they're prepared to put on the line for that. Mm. And I'm hoping that as academics we're able to rise to that challenge mm. and say that not in my name, first of all, but also what are we prepared to contribute and give and put on the line for the struggle? And so, I mean, in, in wrapping up this conversation, I want to I want to ask about, um, I suppose, the, the question around violence. And I ask this question because I think that um, it's a question that many people have raised, but more so people have, you know, last year, the, the way Fees Must Fall looked last year and the, the kind of response we received nationally last year to what has happened this year has, has been interesting and, and a bit different as well. But there's a whole conversation about how, you know, I supported Fees Must Fall until it became violent. And, and there's a lot of um, conversation around that. And I think that for a lot of people, especially what happened at Parliament this week, um, you know, was unsettling, I suppose, mm. to, to put it lightly. And people have different perspectives about this. So I'm interested to hear from you, especially as an academic and interacting mm. with other academics mm. who share these kinds of perspectives. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on this? We, we can't, and, and I say this as someone who, I'm sorry to the nation, but I say this as someone who's very much biased in favor <laughs> of the Fees Must Fall movement, but the question of violence is an important one that we need to ask. How, how do you address that? I think it is important to ask, and I think every political movement needs to be able to have self-criticism and mm. be able to look internally at its tactics and strategies. I know that there is a voice within the student movement that um, articulates the fact that there's structural violence perpetrated against them um, constantly um, and that they essentially will um, take a step-by-step approach and escalate their response to that violence as appropriate. Mm. Um, my personal view is I, I don't believe that protests should be violent. I don't believe that uh, specifically I have a very strong view on interpersonal violence. I think there's a difference between property and people. So there's a difference between a door being broken and a person being beaten up and thrown into a police van or picked up in the middle of the night from their residence. Mm. Um, so I do make those distinctions. And that is, you know, in our interaction with the student movement, of which there are many streams, I think those are important conversations to have. It's quite difficult in a very polarized context to be mm -hmm. able to unpack the tactics and struggles of a movement such as this. Um, but it's a complex space. And I think that what's important is that we try to 
make that critique from within and make it balanced. Mm-hmm. So I'll just give you a very brief example. In the in the, my involvement in the last few weeks, I have seen some acts of violence mm. from the student movement. They have been the breaking of a door, the breaking of a window, and the assault of one security guard. And I don't condone those. But I have also witnessed and heard from direct witnesses of many acts of terror and violence by police and private security, which we do not hear in the national discourse because... There is really a propaganda war against mm. the student movement. Mm. So, for example, at Parliament, we don't hear a huge outcry about the fact that stun grenades were fired before any warning was given, mm. that the riot police pushed into the crowd to disperse them at 10 to 3, in other words, before the permission had ended, mm. which is an extremely dangerous thing to do, that they chased students and some of us that were there through the streets of Cape Town for no reason. Mm. So uh, police should never be running after, after somebody right. when they're trying to disperse a crowd. Mm. So, and of course, then we saw the scenes of mayhem that happened afterwards. Some of us are wonder whether there could be some third force elements involved. I don't know. Certainly the student leadership that I've interacted with have not planned or condoned those Mm, events. mm. So that's my response to that. It's, Mm, mm. you know, it's a complex and nuanced Mm. issue. And I think we should have the confidence to be able to talk to it. Mm. And and I hope that within the student movement, they will be able to do that kind of self-critique as well. Mm. I mean, I think ultimately what I'm what I'm hearing from you is that the answer is not clear cut. But the answer also doesn't have to be clear-cut in order for us to address the concerns that that are being raised by the student movement. Dr. Lydia Kencross, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show with us tonight. Um, I have met very few doctors that have so many diverse um, roles and diverse capacities. <laughs> I just want yes. to say also that I am a mom of two very beautiful children. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yes, and I have a husband who's an orthopedic surgeon who supports me and is looking after them right now so oh. that I can be here talking to you. <laughs> Absolutely precious. Well, we're not going to keep you any longer. That was Dr. Lydia Kencross. She's the head of breast and endocrine surgery at Grotesky Hospital. Um, thank you so much for joining us this evening.